This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I'm host of the podcast Transformative Principle, author of the book School X, and author of the book How to Be a Transformative Principal. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyber Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, which is a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Hello there, Jethro. Well, happy Monday, Fred. Good to see you. Yes, it is good to be back on the air with you and chatting about some more of our favorite cyber traps topics. Yes, it's it's always fun. Um, I do want to say a special welcome to all of our Amazon Music podcast subscribers. Um, we had a huge influx this last weekend of listeners, um, a lot. In fact, more than we've ever had in a single two-day period. So That's fantastic. Yeah. So either uh, Amazon Music finally pushed through their updates, or their stats or something, but we had a lot this last weekend. And so welcome to everybody who's listening in that arena. Well, that is fantastic news. I'm glad to hear that. And we are going to promise weekly and sometimes bi-weekly That's right. fascinating, <laughs> fascinating information for people. As a matter of fact, as you've probably seen in our 
little workflowy outline and a shout out to one of my favorite programs. Um, we've got some interesting stuff coming up over the course of the year that we're going to be talking about. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really do hope people will continue to join us. Yes, please do. And we've got some good guests coming up as well. So that will be good also. So April 2022 is National Child Abuse Prevention Month. Um, so tell us about this proclamation and what it what it means, Fred. Absolutely. So Jethro, this is something I stumbled across about a week ago when I was going through my usual research harvesting in this area. <laughs> and um, calling April 2022 is a little overly specific, actually, because April has been National Child Abuse Prevention Month for a number of years now. And it's an opportunity for government agencies and nonprofits and non-governmental agencies or organizations to raise awareness about child abuse, the risk factors that are associated with child abuse, and what we can do to minimize and prevent child abuse as best we can. Um, in this particular case, what I flagged during the research was uh, a White House proclamation, which uh, is in our ongoing list of resources that we put together each week. And you can go through and read it there. And basically the goal of the proclamation from the White House is to condemn and to combat child abuse. And there's several categories that the White House is interested in addressing. So physical, emotional, uh, sexual, and then of course the topic we'll spend most of our time on today, online sexual exploitation. Um, as I said, they want people to be better aware of some of the risk factors and also more broadly from a policy perspective, highlight the importance of supporting families, which regrettably is where the vast bulk of this child abuse occurs. In the context of cyber traps and cyber traps for educators, one of the things I think will be interesting to discuss specifically with you, Jethro, is the extent to which the educational community receives training on these risk factors and uh, information on what to do if they see things that are potentially problematic. Yeah, you know, before we get to that, I want to say one of the things that I, um, that I like from the proclamation is that uh, it says, I was raised to believe that one of the greatest sins is the abuse of power, and there is no greater abuse of power than the abuse of a child. And in that situation, having been in an educational setting for many, many years and seeing how that, uh, that abuse of power is a big deal and the abuse of children is even worse, I absolutely agree with that statement. And it's something that despite all the training and despite all the, the warning signs that we have, this horrible, heinous act is going to continue and has been going on for ever. And it's one of those things that makes me feel sometimes like, gosh, there's just nothing that we can do to stop this. And yet I have seen firsthand situations where I've had to have difficult conversations with parents and say, you are hurting your child and it has to stop. And these are the ways that we're going to help you. But we're very limited as an educational institution in how we actually can help. And so we need to involve outside agencies. And this is something where um, it is so it's so important to me, um, and yet I can totally see how people 
fall into the situation. Good people who don't want to hurt anyone just don't have the skills to do anything. And so I think that it really does that idea that needs to support families is, is very true. And there needs to be a lot of support for them because it's just tragic when it happens. So boy, there's so much to talk about (laughs) with all of this. Look, you know, the, the scale of the problem, right. Is always an issue. And one of the things sometimes that people count on is good people feeling overwhelmed, right? Like we can't fix the whole thing. And I think that, you know, when I began working on on cyber traps for the young back in 2010, 2011, I began to appreciate that, right? Mm -hmm. And that to some degree was driven by the work that I've done on computer forensics, where unfortunately I've seen quite honestly, some of the worst of human behavior that you can imagine. And you do get overwhelmed sometimes. But the point of cyber traps for the young and the point of your conversations, I think, was that at the end of the day, if you've helped to protect at least one child, then you've made a net positive that there's one less person being harmed by this. And that's a step in the right direction. And, and what we're really hoping with this kind of awareness of National Child Abuse Prevention Month is that more people will step up and try to help at least one child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really, that's what, to me, it comes down to is that mm. um, every kid should have a safe, loving, supportive home that they live in. But the reality is that not every kid does. And so they need other people who care about them to step in and and provide support where they can. Every child should be in a safe and loving classroom that is respectful and appropriate. And and that doesn't always happen either. So they need other people to come in and say something. So just last week, I was was at a school uh, talking with the principal and there was a kid in the office. And as soon as I saw the kid, I knew this kid gets in trouble all the time. Like that is their MO at school. And when can I, I, can I actually, this is a great opportunity, I think for the audience, right? Cause you're a principal and not all of us get to have conversations with principals yeah. <laughs> as much as we might like, you know? So I guess the question I would have for you, Jethro, before you go further is what, what tells you that as, as a principal, how do you know that? What do you, what do you see? Yeah. In a child. So in this particular situation, I saw a child who was very comfortable being in the office. Uh, They didn't. Interesting. They didn't look or seem to feel like they were out of place. And Uh, they. So they've been there before. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And, And that's why I laughed when you asked that question, because this is. This is something where you can tell where when somebody is comfortable when they're not comfortable and a kid who has never been to the office and never gets in trouble is like tears streaming down their face. Eyes are big. They're worried. They're nervous. They're fidgeting. This kid was just, you know, sitting there leaning back. Now, the thing is, is I don't suspect that this kid kid had any abuse going on in his life, but he felt that his teacher hated his guts and there was no hope for him to be successful. And I do not think that any child should feel that way at all, that the adult who's supposed to care about them doesn't love them. And that is like a a child feeling that way. 
that, and I, again, I do not suspect any kind of abuse or mistreatment by this teacher, but the fact yeah. that the kid doesn't feel loved is an area of concern for me. That means something not right is going on. And so I talked with this kid and tried to build a relationship, tried to talk to him and help him feel like somebody did care about him. And, and that's all it takes sometimes is we can't, we can't solve every problem. And I certainly wasn't trying to solve any of his problems. I was trying to communicate that you are important and you matter and I care about you even if I don't know you that well. And I'm going to try to do whatever I can. And that's where, when it comes to this conversation, that's really what we need to be doing is looking for kids who seem to be struggling and give them appropriate healthy support without trying to solve their problems for them, but just be there to say, we care about you and you matter. And this is the reason why I bring this up so early on is because this is such a simple thing to do that once you do this and you let someone know you care about them, then they can actually start believing that they can deal with whatever challenges they're facing. They may come to you for help or support, or you may never know what's really going on and you may never do anything. But the fact of the matter is, if, if they don't believe that you care about them for no reason other than they are a human being and they matter, then, you know, you're reinforcing what they feel as an abused child, which is that they're worthless and they don't matter. You don't want to do that. You want them to know they matter. And then eventually they'll hopefully call out for help and give you some indication that they need help. It doesn't always work that way, but man, letting kids know that they matter and that they're valuable is really, really important. No, that's, that's, that's a beautiful sentiment. I think Jethro, I, I, as I was listening to you talk, it occurred to me though, and, and this again, we'll get back to some of your experience on the front lines that, you know, the parenting child, the parent child relationship is a little bit of a third rail, right? That mm-hmm. people get super indignant if someone is questioning their parenting sometimes and yeah. They don't like being confronted with, you know, suggestions that maybe they're not doing it correctly, or they just, they just have very strong feelings of privacy. Like you have no business Mm -hmm. doing anything that relates to the four walls of my house. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a really challenging piece of all of this, right? We can talk about the risk factors, but one of the biggest risk factors, I think, are some of the cultural attitudes that pervade all of us to one degree or another, right? And I, you know, I don't think this is any particular group, but but that that resistance to interference from the outside is a big part of this issue. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's where. Uh, you know, I think what we'll probably talk about is how to have difficult conversations with parents. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the way we're going. Um, that may be another show altogether. Yeah, that, but yeah. that really could be. And and that's yeah. something where, um, again, if you approach people with love and concern from the beginning, then a lot of those barriers come down. And the problem is, is that so many teachers, and this goes back to your question about training, so many educators, I should say, not just teachers, come at it from a judgment perspective. And coming at it from a judgment perspective is not helpful. Even if it's very clear they're doing something completely wrong, judging them for that turns on the defenses and makes them defensive. And so, well, 
Sure, because some of this is a crime when you get right down yes, to it. Yes, right. And and we so. don't we don't need to be the police officers. We need to be the reporters and the right. teachers teaching them how to do better. And that's if we really think that's our job and sometimes we need to report out to get extra help, then we can really manage this in a much better way. And the thing is is even if a parent is doing something horrifically wrong, we can still treat them as a human being with dignity and say, and I've had to do this numerous times where I've said, what you're doing to your child is not okay. And these are the steps we have to follow. So school personnel get trained on how to, how to deal with this. And Mm -hmm. uh, every school teacher and principal and anybody in a school district is what's called a mandatory reporter, which means that if you suspect neglect or child abuse, you are required to report that to the Department of Child and Family Services or Child Protection Services, whatever it's called in your particular state. And so we are taught every year what we need to do. And I think some states uh, have, you know, you can do that training every couple of years, but I'm pretty sure almost every state has training every single year to maintain your license. You have to complete some sort of training of identifying and knowing how to deal with child abuse. And I think that that is a good step in the right direction. There are certainly flaws to that. It creates an adversarial relationship uh, right from the beginning. It forces you to be a tattletale, which nobody really likes and people feel very strongly about. So those are a couple of the issues there. But definitely we need to be mandatory reporters and share that information with someone who can actually help the family in that situation. Yeah, and it it does occur to me, as you say that, Jethro, that we are, we do have a show here that moves on two slightly different tracks, right? Right. Because when you're talking about managing these conversations and having difficult conversations and being a mandatory reporter, that's primarily focused on concerns about child abuse that you can observe Mm -hmm. in the children in front of you. Right. You know, which is one category, right? The, the physical abuse, uh, the maybe nutritional abuse, not eating enough, maybe eating too much, who knows. But parallel to that is the kind of abuse I think that a lot of parents worry about in terms of not necessarily within their family, but by somebody online. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't want to bifurcate this too much because the proclamation by the president and the White House brings them all together. But I think in terms of the issues we've discussed, the cyber traps piece is much more the latter than the former. Yeah. You as an educator have to be worried about all of it, of course, but you're more likely to have to report abuse that you're seeing that may involve a family member or conceivably another educator as opposed to seeing a child who may be uh, groomed, for instance, or exposed to material online. Yeah, and, and the big challenge there is that um, the, the, the place where they're being exposed to that stuff online is typically on their own private cell phones. Right, and Which so you, right. Y- yeah, have so, limited observation. Of. Exactly, so we do see it as kids are engaging in stuff online on our district devices and things like that. Um, And so there is some of that, but then you have to realize also that there is, um, there, there's a fine line between grooming 
and dating when you are of the same general age and and uh, and you both have cell phones and you know boys are asking for pictures all the time and sending pictures all the time and that is a real thing that happens and so which of that is abuse and which of that is kids exploring and trying to you know understand what is appropriate in a relationship with a member of the opposite sex and and those are challenging questions and conversations that you that you've got to that you've got to grapple with and so sure so well, those but, things but do I, exist is what I'm saying also that we do have to deal with that as well, which stinks. Oh, of course. And, <laughs> and needless to say, I have thoughts about all of this, but look, I, you know, almost an immediate aspect of the analysis for that particular conversation is the age disparity between the people involved. Yeah. Right. The minute you have an adult interacting in a sexual fashion with a minor, you've got potential problems. Absolutely. I mean, it's just that that that's sort of the first cut right there. I agree with you that if you've got peer group interactions, then it's a much different thing. And, and we're seeing so much of kids socializing and growing into maturity online that that kind of behavior is inevitable. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's foolish to think that kids are not going to be exploring their sexuality using devices. Now, of course, as we've talked about frequently, the fact that that creates a permanent digital record or potentially permanent digital record of their exploration is problematic in a whole different set of ways. I mean, I don't actually recall playing doctor when I was a kid, but if I did, it was not recorded for posterity. Thank God. (laughs) His or her manifestations. It's, it's a very, very different environment for kids these days. And given the research I've done, when I get around updating cyber traps to the young, it'll be absolutely clear that kids of that age can be as coercive as adults. There have been all kinds of scandals of kids running basically baseball card trading clubs mm-hmm. of their female classmates. I mean, just really abusive stuff. So your point is exactly right, but that that is an issue we need to address. But, you know, the presumptions that you go into the investigation with are very different given the age groups that might be involved. Yeah, absolutely. And so those what you're looking for, though, is the same kind of behavior that there is. Right. That there's a power power, imbalance. Yep. Mm -hmm. which, Which President Biden was talking about. That's the key. Yeah. And so when you see that stuff, you have to you have to react and do something to make sure that the the person who who is being abused has support Mm -hmm. and and can get get help with that. Now, one of the very real issues is that if there's not a lot of support from outside agencies, if the kids are of the same age, even if it is clearly a an abuse of power. And I think that that has been changing over the past few years. But I remember one of my first incidences with this. It was two sixth grade kids, and there was very clearly an aggressor and a victim, and it was obvious what was going on. And and when we took it to the um, to our school resource officer, he basically said, "Well, you know, they're both eleven and twelve years old, and 
there's not much that we can do here with this. And I remember being so flabbergasted that there was 11 and 12. Yes. And, and I, it was at an elementary school and they were sixth graders and I, and the, the victim was the older person, if I remember correctly. And in that situation, then it was like, well, you know, there's not much that we can do because they're both minors and we can't really, we can't really prove one way or the other. And so it was just this really icky feeling of what am I supposed to do to help these kids? And so it, you know, in talking with the parents and with our school staff, we found some solutions, but it really didn't leave me feeling like we were helping really all that much because they were basically left to their own devices and as no, it were, no pun intended. <laughs> no, no, always intended. Pun. Um, well, let me give you a little bit of legal um, history here, because as you know, I spent 23 years up in Vermont and occasionally would get calls on these tech issues from mm-hmm. legislators or um, prosecutors. And early on in the sexting phenomenon, so this must have been about off the top of my head, maybe 2008, 2009. Somewhere in there, mm-hmm. you're starting to see because, of course, the iPhone came out in 2007. Yeah, it just instantly <laughs> accelerated yeah. the concept of sexting, um, which actually dates back just text-based to about 2004. But anyway, be that as it may, um, Vermont, being good old progressive little state, decided that what it wanted to do was to recognize that kids were starting to use this as a dating slash sexual exploration tool and so they began work on what's known as romeo and juliet exceptions Mm -hmm. to the child pornography laws and the idea behind the quote-unquote romeo and juliet exception is that if kids are under the age of 18 and within an age gap i think vermont was three years yeah that they wouldn't be prosecuted as adults they'd be diverted to family court they'd get education and then they'd be expunged if they didn't come back in. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking with the legislator who was sponsoring that, and he was getting real pushback from the prosecutors in terms of how strong the language was, because the prosecutors were concerned about exactly what you're talking about, a situation where there was coercion as part of that behavior. And as a matter of fact, like, Three months later, there was a case in South Burlington where a kid was coercing through various means young women into recording sex acts on camera and then was literally selling those Mm, and making money off of that. And the prosecutor was like, you see, we want to be able to prosecute this kid as an adult. I think he was 16 or 17 because he is basically imposing harm on these young women. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a legitimate point. I, you know, that was a good exception to carve out of the law. In general, I think the Romeo and Juliet exception makes sense. Not all, st- not all states have it, and parents should be aware of that, mm-hmm. is that in some states, if your kids are doing this, even if it's completely consistent with their age, their maturity, their peer group, they can still be prosecuted for creating and distributing child pornography. Yeah, and and those are very real issues for sure. And and I think as we talk more about some of these um, 
preventive measures, uh, getting that education for yourself so you know what your mm-hmm. own kids are doing, what is legal and not legal within your state and what that looks like and whether or not there <laughs> yes. can, which is a, a difficult thing to do sometimes, right? Because it's not like it's... It's not easy. And actually, it occurs to me that we should put together we should put together a resource guide specifically on that topic and throw it up on the center website. Yeah. So let's talk about, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, that would be good. Um, Cause it's important to know. And as, as, and it's especially important for school personnel to know because some of those things, you know, you, oh, right, right. Because you're the one who's probably seeing a lot of that happening in your school, perhaps more than the parents are even seeing. They may not even know what's going on. Right. And let me give a quick shout out to the Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, because there's a specific section in the book for educators about handling sexting photos and what they need to think about, the things they should avoid doing so that they don't get some prosecutor with a burr up his saddle, um, you know, looking cross-eyed at them. That's like so many metaphors mixed in. But no, absolutely be aware of what the laws say and what exposure kids have, because as you pointed out, they're probably going to do this. You know, the statistics I think are what two thirds of high school kids either send or receive these photos. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's always going to be some percentage that don't, but the majority do and parents need to be aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, And I think the other part with, with families specifically is that they're, they need to have, um, support but they also need to you know i i think one of the simple things is in the in the show notes here is that be interested in the child uh present and interested and these are um you know one of our first interviews we had tessa stuckey on and she talked about narrating what you do on your phone to let your kids know why you're using your phone um in front of them and then basically Mm, to not be using it um as much as you can especially with younger kids and it's it's really fascinating um, how I've seen in my own life and with other people that I observe that kids can tell when you're not paying attention and you're not interested in what they're doing or what's going on. And it, it it's noticeable. And so they may want to say something to an adult that's close to them. But if that person is disengaged or not interested, then they, they will think they don't care. And, you know, it, it's the, it's this idea of inside the kid, a storm is raging and they are like losing their minds about something and, but you can't tell from the outside and the parent is just not paying attention and they're begging for help in dealing with this. But the, the adult around them is just not interested and, and can't be bothered to deal with it. You know? Right. And that's absolutely right, Jeff. And, and the begging, the thing is you, have, you, you're like in the weeds of parenting. I'm a little <laughs> yeah. bit past the, the weeds, but, but that begging can be so subtle. I mean, it's nonetheless real, but as you say, a lot of times they're not really manifesting it as effectively as perhaps they should. And, you know, consistently parents need to keep in mind that the polling is showing that that is the number one complaint of kids with Mm. respect to technology is that their parents are too absorbed in it and not paying enough attention to them. So if you are concerned as a parent about what could be happening to your child. And everybody says they are. They don't want their children groomed or sexually assaulted or exposed to whatever. Well, you need to have those conversations. You need to be in communication 
with your child about what they do on their device. And sometimes maybe you need to look at their devices when they're not holding. Them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, they may not necessarily tell you what they're doing, but you can then ask questions or, you know, one of my favorite techniques is asking a kid, can you install this on my phone and tell me how you use it? Why, yeah. why do you, what does TikTok mean anyway? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and this is something where that, that idea of, of monitoring devices is, is so important. And as a family, you've got to have rules around where devices are at when kids are supposed to be sleeping, how they are supposed to use them. And, um, you know, I talk with my kids all the time about whether or not they're doing appropriate stuff on their phones. And, you know, it is, it is so powerful to have those conversations with them because if you have them before they do anything wrong, then it's so much easier. If you have it after they've made a mistake or done something they shouldn't have, it is so much harder because they're the one of the biggest things that kids are afraid of is that their parents are going to take away their phones. And so they will hide and lie and not share what's really going on <laughs> because they don't want to lose their phone. And and so that right. that is the parents' default response, which is fine. There's no judgment there, but that that makes kids really nervous to talk to their parents about stuff. And so, you know, I tell my kids, you see something inappropriate, you need to bring it to me and then we can talk about whether or not you should be seeing that. And, you know, that, well, does, that doesn't mean they always do it, Fred. <laughs> what a shock. I know, believe me. When when my kids were young and, and thank God we were in the early stages yeah. of the web and the internet at that point. But I actually did test out a couple of monitoring pieces of software or pieces of monitoring software. And my approach even back then was that it was important to choose something that notified me instead of tried to block everything Uh because notification works better. Number one, because you can't block everything. It's just not possible. And secondly, I was worried about that loss of trust with the kids. If they discovered that I was secretly, you know, trying to block what they saw online, I'd rather they had open access and then we could have conversations about Mm -hmm. things that I thought deserved to be discussed. But related to that was an understanding of how important this was becoming to them in terms of how they interacted with people. And I, of course, that's vastly accelerated right yeah. now. Yeah. Let me, let me toss out one other thing, though, about not necessarily telling parents what's going on. So one of the things in our show notes is a New York Times article um, going back to uh, 2019 how to protect your children from online sexual predators. Mm -hmm. And it's a really, really useful overview. But one of the things that struck me when I looked at that is that it lists a lot of the interactive programs that you would expect, like uh, TikTok and Snapchat and so on and so forth, all things people should be aware of. But many parents may not realize that in terms of online sexual content, things that seem utterly innocuous actually have large amounts of content that they might want to know about. And my two favorite examples when I go out and lecture to parents groups are uh, Pinterest. Yep. I was going to say that too. (laughs) Yeah. And so you're, you know, and I'm going to gender shame here a little bit, but if your teenage boy 
has Pinterest or Etsy (laughs) on his phone, you might want to open the lines of discussion about what he's using those apps for or what he's searching for, because it is very easy to find large amounts of sexual content on both of those supposedly innocuous sites. Yeah. And so here's a, a good example of that. If you, um, if you have TikTok blocked or they don't have the app, then mm-hmm. they can still access TikTok videos <laughs> through Pinterest very, very easily. And, ah. and so Pinterest Twitter as well, by the way. (laughs) Yes, Twitter too. And so the thing is, is if you're trying to block one thing, they can still access it through these other services. And so you just need to be aware that that is going on and pay attention because it's easy to, um, easy for kids to get around it. But going back to the idea of notification rather than blocking, I think is absolutely um, the way to do it. And that is definitely a, what I would say is, is the best case is to, is to do that is to block it because or to notify instead of block because the blocking, you know, they'll find a way to get around it. And I yeah. myself have been someone who's done that with lots of different things in my whole entire life <laughs> is trying to get around the, <laughs> the rules and things that are set up. And it's, yeah, it it's have, a thing. It is. Well, and, and I think as we, as we start to um, wind down on these preventative measures, one of the things that, I feel is particularly important is the length of time that these conversations need to take place over. Yeah. And you know, the, the rule of thumb, which I, I developed some years ago, and I don't think has really changed very much is that parents. And you know, of course we've talked a little bit about, you know, the next generation coming along, but parents need to, think about having these uncomfortable conversations about three years before they're ready to do so. You may think that you, you know, and I actually just talked about this with my sister uh, over this weekend that we were all together and, and she has a daughter who's 12 now. And that may be when she is beginning to be comfortable about having conversations on some of these topics. But honestly, in a lot of situations, kids eight, nine, 10 years old are being exposed to adult content online and they need the context to help them process what's going on. The reality is that is the average age at which kids are exposed to adult material. So there's your three year rule right Mm -hmm. there. You know, they're ahead of us. They're ahead of where we think they are almost at every stage. So the best and, and most effective tool is to just begin talking to them, even if it's hard, even if it's awkward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that is, I, I would agree wholeheartedly, talk about it because you, you're you not going to be the first thing that they hear about it. And having, <laughs> been, <certainly> not. <laughs> having been in an elementary school, I have heard kids say things that I would not, that I would be shocked that adults were saying in in polite company, and they are saying it like it's no big deal. And so Is your kid company anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, so kids hear it, kids say it, and it, it's much better for you to be having the conversation than for them to go and learn about it from somebody else. I agree. Uh, let's see what else can we close out with? Um, we talked a little bit about uh, using technology to assist in child safety. Um, in addition to preferring notification over attempts at blocking, 
Um, I think it's absolutely critical that parents not imagine that by buying a couple of pieces of software, they relieve themselves of the responsibility of supervising yeah. what's on the computer or what's on the device. The, we're probably at some point going to do a show just legal nerdy stuff, but there is absolutely no question that negligent supervision by parents is going to be a trend in terms of lawsuits and litigation because there are very real harms that are occurring. I mean, the most extreme example is the Ethan Crumley case, which I'm following up in Michigan, where not only, of course, is he facing murder charges, but his parents are facing criminal uh, negligence charges for not taking action on some of his uh, statements, some of his threats, and so forth. Um, the civil lawsuits will start flying if they have, they may have started flying already. Um, and yes, that is an extreme case, but imagine a kid who needs extensive therapy because of cyberbullying or cyber harassment, all kinds of potential situations. So parents need to understand that not only is there a, a reasonable expectation as a parent that you would supervise what your kid's doing for their own safety, but also for other kids' safety as well. And that's just part of the game. If they, and here's the thing, this was the motivation, Jethro. This was the motivation for Cyber Traps for the Young way back when. The idea that we're giving kids these powerful, powerful devices, oftentimes long before they have the wisdom and maturity to use them. And that's on the parents. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is something that we... I'm sure, like you said, we're going to see much more of. And I remember when that Ethan Crumley situation happened and very quickly the parents were being sought after and they well, were. Well, we did pressed. a show on it, I think, a week later. Didn't yeah, we? we did. And I, I remember thinking, holy cow, I don't think I've ever seen a case where a kid has done something bad at school and the parents have been partly to blame for it. And then things came out and we saw what it was. And I was like... <gasps> That is crazy, but it makes sense that the parents should yeah. be held responsible because they, they, I mean, they could have stopped it. It seemed like from, from the reports that we got and, and, and to be fair, it's not just that they turned a blind eye, but they almost seem to be encouraging. Him. I know just like one of awful. the mother's texts was ha ha ha. Next time. Don't get caught. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my God. I know. Oh, yeah. So that that kind of stuff, you know, when it comes yeah. to other kinds of abuse is, I think, very likely to happen in the future. That if parents are, sure. you know, one, turning a blind eye and two, encouraging it, those both are very, are very awful and should not happen. I absolutely agree with you. Look, I, you know, as always is the case with you, Jethro, when we go through these conversations, yeah. there's so many show ideas that spin out of each topic. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a real treat. I do want, as always, to remind folks that we have a resource section for this podcast that has a bunch of articles, a bunch of press releases from different governments about what they're doing about our original topic, which we drifted from a bit, <laughs> National Child Abuse Prevention Month, which is really, uh, I think, an important thing to focus on. There's couple of press releases. I will say, and I was interested by this, that what triggered this, honestly, was not Joe Biden's statement, but the fact that Flickr 
had put out a statement, you know, Flickr, of course, being the photo hosting site. And I thought they did a really smart thing. They just made some very, I think, solid statements and promises about what they're trying to do to re reduce child abuse. But I was actually surprised. I searched for statements by Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and I actually didn't find anything that specifically talked about this particular month. And hmm. you know, maybe you shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's not a big deal because they all have sections on their websites about reporting abuse and minimizing abuse and so forth. But I do think they should be uh, out in front of this a little bit more in a more public way. Yeah, I preach it to the choir on that one. They, <laughs> I think they are majorly dropping the ball considering how much stuff does happen on their platform. So that's definitely an issue for sure. Uh, here, here. Anything else, Jethro? Any nope. final statement? I think that's good. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps, including Amazon Music, which was awesome. Thank you for listening there. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have question, topic, or guest suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating and review, and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.